Please stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture reading today is from Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 21. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word.
If you have your Bibles, I invite you to keep them open to Isaiah chapter 59 as we pray together this morning. Father, I pray that as we open Isaiah 59 today, that you would give us courage to look honestly at ourselves and to recognize how deeply and completely we need a Savior. We need your mercy. Pray, Lord, that you would convict us of sin this morning so that our joy in your mercy for us would be all the greater. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of your Son. Amen. At some point in your life, you've probably had the experience of dealing with something that you thought was a small problem, but that turned out to be a very large problem. Like hearing your car make a noise that you try to ignore only to find out that it was a sign of something catastrophic happening under the hood and expensive to fix. If you're a generally optimistic person like I am, that's probably your first move. You hear the car make a noise and you say, it'll be fine, I'm sure, probably, hopefully. But ignoring the signs of trouble doesn't make the problem go away. A few years ago, my family and I were tuning in to watch press conferences from the Colorado Forestry Department every night because there was a wildfire burning pretty close to where some of my family lives. They think it started like so many forest fires do when someone ignored the rules forbidding campfires because of the drought that was happening at the time and said to themselves, it's just a tiny campfire. It will be fine. But what started out as a small thing didn't stay that way. The fire that started out as a little campfire would end up consuming over 200,000 acres of forest and 42 homes as it burned unchecked from August to December. The smoke was... So thick, excuse me, the smoke was so thick that in a town about 45 miles away, it blocked out the sun in the middle of the day and made it look like twilight. The pictures of it are like something from a Martian landscape. The person who started that campfire didn't know that it would go on to become the largest wildfire in the state history. And as it grew, the reality of the situation became clearer. What had once seemed a trivial thing suddenly became a devastating catastrophe because ignoring warning signs is a dangerous thing to do. That's the situation that ancient Judah was in at the point that we catch up with him this morning in Isaiah 59. For years, literally for decades, they have heard Isaiah and other prophets warning them that things were bad and getting worse. But they ignored Isaiah or dismissed, dismissed his message as mere hysterics. They weren't worried. They weren't nervous about their situation. God had told them that for their sin and wickedness, they would face his wrath, and basically their response was, we're good. They blew right past the signs that said, severe drought, no campfires allowed, and thought, we know what we're doing. We're going to be fine. In fact, we know that from earlier in the book of Isaiah that his preaching to them actually hardened their hearts against God. Hearing the warnings that God's judgment was coming only made them more arrogant and more prideful. But now things have changed by the time we've gotten to chapter 59. God has raised up Babylon as the instrument of his judgment against Judah, just as he said that he would. 
And they will conquer Judah and carry away most of the people into captivity, back to Babylon. Now, choosing Babylon was not accidental or coincidental. God raised up these people from this place for a reason. We were introduced to Babylon way, way back in the book of Genesis when God called a man named Abram to pack his bags and go to a new place, to a land that God would give to him and to his descendants. Abram was from a place called Ur in the land of the Chaldeans. But God promised to give his family a bountiful land to be their new home. Those people would go on to become the nation of Israel, and what's left of it by the time we're reading at this point in Isaiah is called Judah, and they live on the land that God gave to Abram and to his family. The Chaldeans, Abram's former people, would go on to grow into a global superpower, ravaging and conquering everything that they could get their hands on from their capital city of Babylon. The fact that God is bringing judgment in the form of a Babylonian army to execute His judgment is not a coincidence. He is dragging His people back to the land that Abram first came from and ripping the land of promise out of their hands. And now, in Isaiah chapter 59, that day is almost upon the people. Babylon is raging just over the horizon, and the people of Judah are beginning to realize how dangerous the situation really is for them. But rather than listening to Isaiah and turning from their wicked ways, the people do what they've always done, and they dig in their heels. And we read in chapter 58, verse 3, as they turn toward God, they do not repent. Instead, they say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? They see Babylon coming, and they turn toward God and say, hey, we are good people. Why are you letting this happen to us? We've done what we were supposed to do, and now that we need you, you are nowhere to be found. It's an accusation that's meant to put God on defense, and that's not typically something that goes well in Scripture. When Job asked God why he had been allowed to suffer the way that he did, God's response to him was an overwhelming display of his glory that made Job tremble in silent fear. He had no more accusations after that. But the people of Judah are indignant. They look around at what's about to happen, and they say, we don't deserve this. We've served you, we've done what we were told, and now you are nowhere to be found. Isn't that how we sometimes feel when something truly, truly devastating happens? Not an inconvenience, but something truly heartbreaking and devastating happens. It's hard not to feel a little bit like these people do, to get defensive and bitter feel like God is nowhere to be found. For ancient Judah, God's response had two parts. The disaster that they're about to experience is the direct result of God's judgment against them, and one of Isaiah's jobs has been to tell them that. First, in the rest of chapter 53, he explains to them that they are not half as righteous as they think they are. Their worship has been vain. They have not had the sort of righteous character that God called them to, they have been hypocrites. 
Even though they go through the motions of true worship, their character reveals that they neither know nor actually love God at all. And then here in chapter 59, Isaiah explains to them that it is not just that they have not been worshiping rightly, but that they are deep down far more sinful and deserving of God's judgment than they realize. The fire that they think is well under control is actually already a wildfire consuming everything in sight. It is already out of control. So their only hope is to accept that and then pray that they will be rescued. And Isaiah makes his case to them in three sections. First, in verses 1 through 8, Isaiah confronts them while they are looking for someone to blame. They see disaster coming, they want to point fingers somewhere, and Isaiah confronts them about who they should blame. Second, in verses 9 through 15, he leads the people to look in the mirror at themselves instead. And lastly, in verses 17 through 21, the chapter ends with an encouragement to look for a Redeemer. Three sections, looking for someone to blame, looking in the mirror instead, and then looking for a Redeemer. He wants them to look around them and see that the raging fire that surrounds them will be their doom, to feel the despair that they ought to feel, to be broken by it so that they will finally, finally accept that they need help. In this chapter's opening lines, Isaiah explains that the people's accusation against God is unfounded. Behold, he says, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. It is not that God is too weak or too far away to help you. That is not the problem here. But your iniquities, he says in verse 2, have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The problem is that the people have cut themselves off from the one who can help them. They have done this. They have made the separation between themselves and God. And now, as everything is falling apart, they're pointing their finger at, saying, at God and saying, where are you? How could you let this happen? They're looking for someone to blame for the disaster that they're facing because Jerusalem will fall. The temple will be torn down. The people will be marched off to Babylon. And it is not, Isaiah wants them to know, it is not because God is too weak to stop it from happening. It is because these people have brought it upon themselves. Isaiah anticipates that they will scoff at him for saying that. Who could possibly deserve what's about to happen to Judah. I mean, sure, they're not perfect, but this seems like a little bit of an overreaction, right? So, in verses 3 through 8, he levels the specific charges, and they are serious. Their hands are defiled with blood, he says. It's a callback to the very first chapter of Isaiah where God condemned His people with the same language, the same phrase, that their hands are defiled with blood. Decades and decades of warnings and calls to repentance have changed nothing. Even though He established a covenant with them and called them to live differently than the rest of the world, they haven't. The law commanded them to be honorable and kind and hospitable, but rather than serving one another and honoring God in the ways that they honor one another, they have stained their hands with one another's blood Though God called them to honestly uh, to honesty and faithfulness, Isaiah says that they are instead deceitful and that wickedness is what comes out of their mouths. On the streets and in the courts, 
There is no justice to be found in Judah. People take advantage of one another. They lie and cheat to get ahead. Where there was supposed to be a people who represented God's own character among the nations, these people have become just like the nations. They worship the same worthless idols and carry out the same wicked and terrible acts. But the difference is that they ought to know better. If a 10-year-old grabs the keys to his parents' car and takes it out for a joyride, he might get out of control, might end up driving on the sidewalk or through a city park. But the consequences for that kid would be different than if his 35-year-old dad started driving down the sidewalk and through the city park. We treat those situations differently, even though they're equally reckless and dangerous. God's people had something that nobody else had. He gave them the law, and then He sent prophets to give them direction and warnings about what would happen when they broke it. They were supposed to be different, these people, to be a shining beacon of the very character of God Himself among the nations who did not know Him. But rather than abiding by the law, they've abandoned it completely, so completely that, even, that now even their acts of supposed worship and their acts of righteousness, all that they're able to conceive is mischief and give birth to iniquity. All that comes out of them is sin. Isaiah illustrates that point with some figurative language in verses 5 and 6. He paints a picture of his people as poisonous snakes and spiders. They're dangerous. Most sane people, I'm assuming this includes most of you, would not want to keep a deadly animal as a pet. Maybe you keep a vicious dog around if it will guard your house or keep robbers out or something like that. But Isaiah is quick to point out that there is no benefit that makes these people worth the risk. He says that their eggs are poison. All that comes from them, the only thing that they give is sin and death. And then he says they enjoy it. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They're swift. No hesitation. No second thought. They run to it. The well-worn paths they tread lead to desolation and destruction and away from justice. And no one who walks on their crooked roads knows peace because there is no peace to be found in Judah, none. Passing through their territory is a life-threatening ordeal. This passage, this section, is a, a relentless string of indictments, one right after the other after the other. Isaiah does not pull any punches or sugarcoat the reality of what he sees around him. Reflecting on this passage, John Calvin wrote that Isaiah paints a picture of extreme wickedness. When men have shaken off and cast away the fear of God and throw themselves into every kind of wickedness, all cruelty, extortion, and outrage. It's hard to imagine an accusation that Isaiah could have added to the list. It seems pretty complete. And he is clear. If you're looking for someone to blame for the arrival of God's judgment that is coming soon, look around you. It is you. These people 
deserve what is coming for them. For all the times they have not just fallen short of calling of the calling that God gave them, but shattered it in spectacular fashion, they have dared God to keep His word and bring justice to their doorstep. The people want someone to blame for their misfortune, for the suffering that they are about to endure, the disaster that is about to unfold. And Isaiah says, there is no one to blame but yourselves. But he isn't just pointing fingers. In verses 9 through 15, he shifts from making a case against them to joining them. We can see that in the way that he shifts from saying you to they, or a you and they, to in the first section, to we and us, beginning in verse 9. He wants people to look in the mirror and see the ugly truth about themselves, and he is willing to look with them as they honestly confess sin together. This middle section of the chapter roughly parallels the first. He's repeating the accusation, and he's applying it now to himself alongside the rest of the people. It's an exception, an acceptance rather, that these accusations are right. In verses 9 and 11, he says that they hope for the light of God's favor and for justice and righteousness to be what defines them, but there is none, none to be found anywhere. What they long for, they cannot find, and he explains why with three metaphors. First, he says that sin has made us blind. Like someone who has no eyes and cannot tell what direction they're going, they're pursuing wickedness and they are so sinful that they can't even tell. Second, he says that sin has made us like dead men. It's language that Paul will later borrow in Ephesians 2, where he writes that humanity is utterly dead in sin and transgression against God. It has cut us off from the living God. Third, Isaiah turns to another animal metaphor. Sin has made the people like wild beasts and crying birds more than they are like men and women. Like animals, they live according to base instincts rather than any sense of what is right and what is wrong. And because that is the case, the sheer number of their transgressions has multiplied, he says in verse 12. They are now simply beyond counting. From the inside out, there is nothing good to find there, only sin. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning our back from following our God speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, he says in verse 13. Heart is a significant word in Hebrew, just like it is in English. He's not referring to the organ, but to the very nature of a person. Sin has come from these people's hearts, from the very middle of their being, This is not a surface-level problem. It goes to the very center. And Isaiah knows that his heart, along with all of theirs, is a fountain of sin. It pours forth in a never-ending stream. Even his best acts are corrupted and stained with sin and self-interest so much that justice itself is turned back and righteousness itself stands far away. For truth itself is stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking." And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Isaiah mirrors the conclusion of the first section by pointing again to the fact that bystanders are in danger here. Anyone who departs from evil makes himself a target. The entire society is rotten to the very core. 
But this is a signal to us that there are a few, a few people whose hearts are turned toward God, even if they accept, like Isaiah does, that they are sinners and rebels against God's goodness. But they put their lives in danger if they speak out about the wickedness that they see around them every day, or even if they simply refuse to participate in it. It's the original cancel culture. When Jeremiah was sent by God to prophesy to these same people about the fact that God's patience would not last forever and that he would answer their sin one day, the people, his own people, tried to kill him for it. At every turn, the problem that Judah is facing is revealed to be much, much more severe and serious than they seem to realize at this point. Over and over again in this chapter, we read that there is no justice anywhere to be found in the whole land. The people ought to defend what is vulnerable and to destroy what is wicked. But instead, evil is exalted and good is condemned. The vulnerable are exploited and injustice goes unanswered. And Isaiah wants his people to look in the mirror and see that truth about themselves, to recognize how bad things really are, because in the final section of this chapter, Isaiah gives them a warning. God will not leave their wickedness unanswered. The Lord saw it, he says in verse 15, and it displeased him that there was no justice. The word translated, it was displeasing to God, is also translated, it was evil in God's sight. This is not a mere annoyance. It's not just rubbing him the wrong way. It's not bothering him like we might feel the sort of irritation when someone cuts us off in traffic. God's heart burns with a holy anger at what he sees happening in Judah. It is a frightening reality that Isaiah himself faced on the day that he was commissioned by God to be a prophet. Back in chapter 6, Isaiah found himself in the presence of God, and it was overwhelming to him. God was seated on his throne in all of his majesty, and Isaiah notes that the train of God's robe filled the whole temple. And instantaneously, Isaiah feels tiny as he stands in God's presence. The sheer enormity of God has put things into perspective. But it isn't just God's physical presence that has changed how Isaiah sees things. When he looks, he sees heavenly creatures who are continually proclaiming the holiness of God. And then when God speaks, it shakes the whole building, and Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the blinding light of the glory of God, Isaiah sees things clearly for the first time in his life. He sees God's holiness, and suddenly he sees his own sinfulness. There is no denying it. There is no minimizing it. Any attempt at self-justification or passing the blame is pointless. So he assumes that he is about to endure the full measure of the wrath of God. And he says, woe is me. But instead, when he proclaims that he is a man of unclean lips, that it is his own sin that that has incurred God's righteous anger, something that he wasn't expecting at all happens. One of the heavenly creatures comes and takes a red-hot coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips with it and says in verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Rather than insisting on his innocence, 
in the presence of God or minimizing his sin, he was humble before God, accepted that his sin warranted God's judgment and that the only hope he had was in God's willingness to be merciful. Isaiah knows from very personal experience that God is both holy and gracious. He will not ignore wickedness, pretend like it doesn't exist, and he delights to show mercy to those who accept that they need it. Right now, the people of Judah are saying, woe is me, I'm a good person, but now I'm facing disaster and God has abandoned me. They are not seeing things clearly the way that the very presence of God helped Isaiah to see things, but that will change. In verses 17 and 18, Isaiah gives an ominous warning to them. God is dressing himself for war, and one of the things that he is putting on is garments of vengeance. He wears zeal as a cloak, so he will not be deterred from repaying according to the deeds of these people. Everywhere, as far as the coastlands, his judgment will come, churning like the rapids in a flooded river. It is a frightening warning to these people. The judgment of God is not long in coming to them. But then, for the first time in the chapter, God speaks in verse 20. A Redeemer will come to Zion, and to the people of God to those who turn from transgression. Most, we know, will remain proud. They will hear the warnings and the offer of rescue, and they will say, I'm good. I don't need your help. But there are some who will see things as they truly are, who glimpse the holiness of God and who know that they cannot overlook their sin because God will not overlook their sin, who do not cling to a false sense of self-righteousness, but who humbly cast themselves on the mercy of God. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit is upon you. My words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or the mouths of your children forever. It is a promise to create in his people the righteousness that does not exist there right now to exchange the hearts that pour forth sin and wickedness with hearts that are full of God's Word instead. And God promises to do this through the work of a Redeemer, one who will, at great cost to himself, bring them out of condemnation. That is good news, not just for ancient Judah, but for all people. Because the warnings and the promises of this passage applied far beyond the borders of ancient Judah. We know that because Paul quoted from this part of Isaiah in Romans chapter 3. In that chapter, he is making a case that all people everywhere throughout history have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are therefore underneath His just condemnation and wrath. And he says, both Jews and Greeks are under sin, all people. And he points to several passages in the Old Testament to explain how he knows that that is true. And one of them says, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, the way of peace they have not known. Paul understood Isaiah 59 to apply not just to ancient Judah, but to all people. To be a condemnation of all of us. There are three ways I think that this passage makes a difference in our lives. 
The first and most significant is the reason that Paul quoted from it in Romans 3. It helps us see our need for a Savior. Because this passage is not just about the people of ancient Judah, it is about us too. If we're tempted to argue that we're not as bad as they were, our feet are not swift to shed blood, if we think we're doing all right, this chapter really isn't about us, it's about people who are a lot worse than us. We should not overlook the fact that Isaiah included himself among those who were condemned for their sin. Isaiah included himself among those who stood under the condemnation of God. And he understood that the just retribution of God would not delay in coming to him either. It is, not an, or it is an unpopular and uncomfortable thing to talk about this, let alone to tell the world about it. Like it was for the fringe minority in Isaiah's day, talking about sin today is a cause for cancellation. But ignoring it or accusing God of being unfair does not make it go away. The alarms are ringing. There is a call to realize the danger that we are in. It is a brutal accusation, but one that, if we hear it, will actually help us, because God has made a way out by sending a Redeemer. It is God's own Son, the Rescuer, who redeems by giving His life in place of ours, who satisfies the demands of His own righteous anger by taking the guilt of His people on His own shoulders, atoning for their iniquity and creating in them the righteousness that was not there before. That is the Savior that we need, and Isaiah 59 is the alarm bell that wakes us up to how deeply and completely we need Him. Second, this passage helps us to be honest about sin. Like the people in ancient Judah, we are very good at self-justification and minimizing our guilt. We make excuses downplay the truth and try to explain away God's commands as antiquated, outdated, unnecessary. One of the amazing things about Isaiah 59 is the promise of redemption that God gives, His promise to be merciful, is given to a people that we have just learned are the most vile, despicable, horrible people that we could possibly conceive of. Every terrible thing, they have done it. And God offers to be merciful to them. They take advantage of the vulnerable. They blaspheme against God with their daily acts of violence and greed. And they love doing it. They run to it. These are truly wicked people. But God is willing to show them mercy. If we search for the bottom of the grace of God, we will never, ever find it. There is no limit he is more gracious than we are able to be sinful. But there is a condition, only one, there is a condition in this chapter. God is gracious. He sends a Redeemer even to these wicked people if they will turn from transgression. The pride that made them puff out their chest back in chapter 58 when they said, why have we fasted and you see it not? is a barrier that the mercy of God does not penetrate because pride says, we don't need your help. It ignores the warnings and the promises of God, and it says, I'm good. Not that bad. I'm in good shape. This passage encourages us with the good news of God's mercy 
and that that mercy is sufficient for us no matter how bad things are right now or have been in the past, so that there is a comfort, a a genuine comfort, in being honest about how bad things really are or have been. Our honesty about our sin will give us a deeper appreciation for the mercy of God and a greater comfort in His love for us. And last, Isaiah 59 helps to train our eyes to look for the Redeemer. When God looked down on His people, He saw their sin, and He also saw that there was no one to intercede for them. But then Isaiah says, then His own arm brought them salvation, brought Him salvation. The frightening reality is that we are worse sinners than we thought we were, and that we are no good at changing that. The wildfire of sin is already out of control. It's worse than we think it is. No matter how bad we think it is, it's worse than we think it is. The more we try to fix it, the worse we make it, just as it was for Isaiah and for everyone else in Judah. Among the nation of God's own people, not a single one of them was good. No one was righteous, so no one could intervene on behalf of the rest of the people. So God Himself did. And here's the, here's the thing I want you to remember. No matter where you are in life, you need the grace of God more than you think you do right now. Whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or 15 minutes, that is true. The Christian life is one of slowly realizing more and more and more how deeply we need God's grace to save us and produce in our hearts what was never there before. The believer who has just come to faith today has understood that he is a sinner and that God is merciful to him even though he deserved God's wrath. The believer who has been walking with Christ for decades clings to that promise like it is the only thing that he has in this world because he's realized over the years that it is. It is a terrifying thing to face the fact that we are truly guilty and that God is just. We would rather ignore it or pretend that we are better off than we are. But ignoring the warnings is a perilous thing to do. And hearing them, as hard as it is, is the only way to accept that we need the mercy that God offers us, the mercy that will save us. Martin Luther once wrote, One who can come to the point of despairing over sin and guilt, truly despairing over it, and acknowledging the desolation and inner turmoil, and then of receiving grace, has found the way of peace. Isaiah knew that there was no peace to be found among his people. None. But there was peace to be found in acknowledging the ugly truth and then looking for the Redeemer. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled before you this morning. We do not deserve your kindness, yet you show it anyway. We do not deserve your affection, yet you pour out your blessings. We do not deserve redemption, yet you sent your Son to atone for us and to save us from sin, to to deliver us into your presence forever. So we praise you today and every day, and we ask that you would daily deepen our joy in the growing knowledge that our need for your grace is greater than we knew and that it will never run dry. Pray these things, Lord, in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.